0: Hello BJJ listeners, I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome to what is now our fifth podcast from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. I'd firstly like to again thank all of our readers and listeners for their continuing feedback we have received so far regarding our podcasts as well as the authors who have agreed to take part over the past few months. As many of you know we've already covered a range of topics so far in the series including the management of open fractures with Professor Matt Costa. The role of robotic unicompartmental knee replacement with Professor Far Haddad, as well as last month's podcast on DDH screening with Dan Perry and Alex Arbold. We do hope the podcasts are improving the accessibility and visibility of the work we publish here at the journal. For both you as the readers uh, and, and listeners, as well as for our authors. So over the next 15 or 20 minutes or so, we will cover a range of aspects for the chosen paper or topic, emphasizing the important points and the key findings from the work. And how these could fit into your everyday clinical practices. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study or work. And give them an opportunity to put forward the important conclusions uh, from their their study. So as part of our podcast series, we plan to utilize uh, the invaluable insight of guest interviewers for select papers. As we did recently for our February podcast on giant cell tumors with Sam Patton and AJ Puri. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming our second guest interviewer, Ian Murray, who is my colleague here in Edinburgh, and also our Associate Editor for Knowledge Translation here at the BJJ. Welcome, Ian, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: Ian and I have a real privilege today of being joined by Dr. Scott Rodeo, all the way from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, to discuss the topic of his instructional review paper entitled... Cell Therapy in Orthopedics, Where Are We in 2019, which will be published in the April edition of the Bone and Joint Journal. Welcome, Dr. Rodio, and a big thank you uh, for taking the time to join us.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to come on and try to share some information.
0: Great. So, without further ado, I will hand you over to Ian and
1: Scott. Thanks, Andrew. So, in this podcast, we're going to discuss biologics and cell therapy, specifically touching on some of the controversies highlighted by Scott in his excellent review. So to set the scene, Scott, can you tell us what is meant by the term orthobiologics? Because it's something we're hearing more and more about.
2: Yeah, it's a bit of a catch-all term, but it generally refers to the use of you know, techniques and, and um, you know, things like blood-based products and cell therapy to augment the biology of tissue healing. And a lot of this relates to connected to you know, soft tissue healing soft tissues such as tendons, ligaments, cartilage, meniscus, you know, all these tissues that have inherently poor healing capacity based on either poor vascularity, deficiencies in cells or cell function. So all these types of tissues that we take care of in a lot of our orthopedic injuries that, that have in, you know, inherently poor healing potential. So the use of this so-called orthobiologics is, really refers largely right now to blood-based products such as platelet-rich plasma or various types of cell therapy. Great.
1: And why do you think we are having so much interest in these approaches?
2: You know, as mentioned, we have a lot of the tissues, a lot of the injuries we take care of have inherently poor healing potential, whether that's bone with non-unions or delayed unions, or certainly uh, connective tissues such as tendon, ligament, meniscus, cartilage. These tissues have an inherently poor healing capacity. And a lot of these injuries occur in young, active patients who desire to get back to an active lifestyle. So tremendous attraction as far as the ability to augment the biology. We can optimize the, the mechanical environment as far as our sutures and our implants and the biomechanics, but the whole other part of the equation is the biology of human. How do we augment the biology? And a lot of these tissues have inherently poor human capacity. and that, human, that, that, that poor human capacity may be due to deficiencies in cell number in cell function, uh, deficiencies in vascular supply. These are often in harsh environments mechanically, you know, inside the joint where the tissues see high load. So this combination of factors leads to tissues that have in, in, in inherently poor healing capacity. Furthermore, these are tissues that accrue progressive degenerative changes over time, tendinopathy, osteoarthritis. So these certainly uh, provide a very attractive environment for the ability to augment the biology of tissue healing. Yes. And...
1: More and more of our patients are asking about biologics and much of the media hype that surrounds it has come from celebrity athlete endorsements. In fact, you clearly have significant experience treating professional athletes, um, particularly as head team physician for the New York Giants. In your centre, are biologic therapies frequently being used to treat these elite athletes? And are the approaches you're using different to your regular clinical practice?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It does, certainly does come up a lot from from our pro athletes to our, our everyday, you know, so-called weekend warriors. We use these therapies sparingly, um, not, not on a regular basis by any means. We, there is, you kind of look at, the, you know, the evidence we have, there are some early um, emerging data for the use of, say, platelet-rich plasma, as an example, for treating symptoms of knee arthritis. There's a little early data on the use of PRP for treating chronic tendonopathy. So, in those settings... We've used um, these, you know, these biologic approaches in a sparing fashion. But I think we need to really educate our patients as to what we know, and importantly, what we don't know. There's a lot of these um, treatments have great potential, but the data is often uh, mixed at best or incomplete. But so we, so we do use these, but sparingly. Um, and PRP is probably the most commonly used you know, cell-based approaches. Whether that's a cell formulation from bone marrow or adipose, is used much less commonly thats that's a little harder to do in the clinical i've in my own practice they've used did cell therapy only right now in clinical trials at the time of surgery um, so it's an area that continues to be of interest to our patients. It's asked about all the time. I think we need to kind of jump in carefully and and, and really rigorously and, and educate our patients about you know, what we know what we don't know. I think it's okay to use a lot of these are therapies are autologous they're safe. It's important to really have an informed uh, decision or in the discussion with your patient. Really educate your patient about uh, risks versus and benefits and, and what is known versus what is not known about a lot of these therapies.
1: No, I agree. That's very important. So, if we turn specifically to cell therapies, the terminology is extremely confusing, and many of our readers will have noticed a vogue moving away from the use of the term stem cell. Because that has a very specific definition. Are you able to guide us through this confusing terminology a bit, Scott? Yeah,
2: That's a great question. It is. It's almost more confusing each year. You're right. We're learning um, that there are a number of different um, heter- you know, very heterogeneous cell populations that are all kind of lumped together as stem cells. And these are very, very heterogeneous. At, at the most basic level, a stem cell would be defined by a cell that both has ability for self-renewal. Number one, number two, multi-lineage differentiation. Now that cell can differentiate into all the different cells uh, in, in, a, in a given tissue. So that's that's the uh, the most simple definition. But the cell formulations used, whether it's from bone marrow, from fat tissue, um, from adipose, from amnion, placenta, these are all very, very different and very heterogeneous. And so we, clearly, the field needs much more refined, uh, detailed ways to characterize these cell populations. Ultimately, we'll use know, uh, proteomics and transcriptomics, and we'll look at gene expression or expression of certain proteins or how cells act in a, in a functional assay to really characterize these very heterogeneous cell populations, because so they are all quite different. And, and it is confusing, and it's confusing to us as physicians. You know it's confusing to our, our patients. So I think it's just, as clinicians, we need to try to really understand these nuances, and don't lump all these cell formulations together just as "quote unquote" stem cells. Just understand that there's a lot of variability. We're still trying to learn about this variability, and ultimately understand what cell formulation is optimal for a given tissue. There's no way that one size fits all. You know, the optimal formulation for treating arthritis is likely different than the optimal formulation for tendinopathy, as an example. So we really need to, yeah, look at these definitions and, and further refine. Uh, These definitions and have a much more detailed way to characterize these cell populations. Oh, absolutely.
1: And unfortunately, it seems that this ambiguous nomenclature is being exploited somewhat by many of the companies that are seeking to sell their product. And using the the term stem cell often misrepresents the, the formulation. So I absolutely agree. It's very important that any user, or whether that be our reader, really tries themselves to interrogate what the preparation actually is from the information that's given. Yes. So in which settings, you touched upon osteoarthritis and tendinopathy. Is there any particular settings that you feel cell therapies are most likely to make a difference to our patients in future, Scott?
2: I think, you know, broadly speaking, I can start by just, you know, any of our these connective tissues have inherently poor healing potential. There's a little data right now as far as treating symptoms of arthritis. So I always tell patients, they, you know, these formulations, as some early did, to suggest that they are symptom-modifying, whether they are structure-modifying is, is more of a leap and is and, and less known. So that is to say, we can treat symptoms, say, of knee arthritis. But do we really regenerate tissue? Well, there's some early emerging data that, that maybe we can with a laboratory purified uh, stem cell populations. So symptoms of arthritis would be one area. Number two is a little bit of data on use of cell therapy to augment uh, healing of the rotator cuff, rotator cuff repair. Again, it's, a lot of this data is early, and we clearly need more data in this area, but certainly, broadly, tremendous potential uh, for, for tissue repair. But again, we need more data. We need to really understand, you know, what is, what is the biologic target we're trying to treat? Are we trying to improve cell proliferation or matrix synthesis or vascularity? You know, those are all very different goals. And the appropriate formulation, the type, type of cells and dose of cells, is likely going to be different based on what we're trying to treat. So, you know, different biologic targets, different treatments. Again, this one size does not fit all. And that's why we need a much more refined understanding of what we're treating or putting in the patient. You know, ideally, we can match the desired biologic target, the tissue are treating, with the optimal cell formulation. Until we know that, we're kind of, you know, flying blindly here. Um, but um, so that's where we need more research. But I think I'd say currently right now, a little data for using cells in arthritis and tendon repair absolutely
1: though that's a great call to action that we need more quality data it's very it's, it's a very difficult area to study isn't it because of this heterogeneity and so comparison between studies is oft, is often difficult are there anything that you think we can do as a group to try and move the field forward in terms of research
2: yeah that is that is what we need and your i think the the single biggest challenge in this whole area is a heterogeneity. You know, when you study any other therapy, any drug, you know, you know you gave drug X at concentration Y, or the patient did this particular exercise. Whereas the treatment is with biologics, it's all different. You know, my PRP is different than your PRP. In fact, my PRP made today is different than my PRP made tomorrow. So we need to characterize what are we putting in the patient. We need, ideally right now, what I encourage clinicians to do is optimally, we take a small sample of what we put in the patient, And bank it, you know, send it to keep in the laboratory where we could ultimately look at the the composition, the biologic activity. Now, that's by now we don't know what to look at. One could do a host of very expensive tests. And so, right now, in our own practice, we're just banking these specimens. Optimally, we need to identify one or two sentinel markers of of quality, of potency, so we can eventually measure or put in the patient and relate that back to the outcome, you know, the clinical outcome, the imaging outcome. Only in that way can we start to understand what works, what doesn't, what is the optimal formulation or cell type for a given condition. Um, so I encourage clinicians, if you're using these therapies, which is very reasonable, again, they're, they're used commonly, they're generally safe, and there is great potential, but if you're using these therapies, at least put your patient in a registry if possible. Follow that patient's outcome, and optimally, again, if we can record what we're putting in the patient, at the very least, identify what cell formulation you're using, what the source is, um, and, and that's how we'll move, move the still forward. Absolutely.
1: Yes, it's, it's hard to imagine a, a, a medical trial where uh, the researchers or the patients don't know the dose of the drug they're being given in that trial. But certainly it seems that some of the studies we've had in biologics, although well-meaning, because of that heterogeneity, it's difficult to go back and even see what the patients have received.
2: Exactly. At the most fundamental level, it's the most basic question you want, you know, you need it in What study. What what was the patient's treatment? And if we don't even know that, (laughs) it makes it hard to go determine outcome and and make conclusions. Yeah.
1: I like your points there about the responsible use of biologics by individual users. As a research community, what's your thought on whether we should try and encourage standardized protocols, say for PRP or for cell therapies, so that we can compare outcomes between studies? Or do you think that's too much of a barrier, putting these limitations on individual groups on what they can study or what they should study? How do you feel about standardizing uh, preparation protocols?
2: Yeah, I think it's, It's challenging. That's the challenge of clinical medicine. You know, any given practitioner, you know, can kind of do what they want to do. And, and that's fine. But I'd say is at the very least, is have a, clin- a practitioner try to, you know, put patients in some type of registry. You know, your, your point's well taken. Can we alt- Also, and we do need to standardize. I think to be able to standardize, we need data. We need to understand, okay, what works, what doesn't. And I think it ultimately does go back to well done clinical and translational research. If we can Learn those things. That is, you know, what formulations are optimal for different tissues. We publish that data. Then we have evidence. So, at the end of the day, we should and it, it, it expect our practitioners to all practice in an, in an evidence-based fashion. If we can provide that evidence of what works, what doesn't, then I think you have the ability to sort of push uh, clinicians as far as what uh, what formulations they use and start to have some standardization in the field. So, I think it all goes back to research, getting you know clinical data, good translational research to start to provide the evidence so we can, in fact, arrive at standardized uh, protocols.
1: Yes, and a big challenge that we often hear about is the regulatory issues, particularly with you guys over the pond in the States with the FDA. We have it perhaps a slightly easier ways of getting through the regulation here in Europe is there anything yes. that you feel is a big barrier in terms of regulation to you getting the trials, or do you think that things are moving in the right direction? Because ultimately, moving this field moving this field forward is going to have to involve the regulators, industry, and the researchers all working together.
2: Absolutely, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think we're moving in the right direction. You know, the, the head of the FDA now in the US, a new new individual, the last two three years, I think has taken a very responsible approach here, where kind of a two-pronged approach. At one time, they are trying to really um, kind of uh, crack down a bit of thrill on unscrupulous use, on the indiscriminate use of a lot of these these, these therapies, because there is unfortunately some indiscriminate use. You know, the marketing is way ahead of the science. So on one hand, they're trying to to um, crack down on those, the indiscriminate use, but at the same time, pave the way for legitimate therapies to come to trial. So actually to kind of, um, uh, make it a bit easier for legitimate companies and centers to proceed to FDA-approved trials. So I, th- I think we're going in the right direction. I think you know the regulatory environment continues to evolve. I think that the scientists need to work with the clinicians and the regulators. And as you say, you framed it very nicely. it needs to be a team approach. You need the clinician, the scientist, the industry representative, and, and the regulatory individuals to work together. And I think we have that environment evolving here. I think there's this area has tremendous potential tremendous interest i mean it's not just orthopedics and in, in all fields of medicine it's a huge growth area i think no doubt our regulatory bodies and individuals understand that and i think they're trying to put their arms around this, this this you know this problem how do we how do we use this in a responsible fashion how do we limit indiscriminate use but at the same time encourage legitimate therapies and let them move forward so, so that's our challenge great
1: so Scott, I think many of our listeners will be very excited by the use of biologics, but will be keen to move things forward as much as they can in a responsible fashion. Do you have any advice for people who might be looking to use biologics in their practice in the first instance of how they can use it responsibly and any particular resources where they can get trustworthy information without being intimidated
2: by the literature as a whole? I think we as practitioners need to simply practice evidence-based medicine. Read the literature. I think you need to read literature that is, you know, is peer-reviewed in journals <coughs> such as one joint journal and the, you know, our other major journals. I think we need to pay attention to where the evidence is. There's lots and lots of marketing. I think we need to follow rigorous data. Again, use these therapies. Put your patients into some type of clinic, uh, in at least registry as possible. Um, and that's hard to do, admittedly. But even at the simplest level, follow your patient's outcome. Collect imaging and, and clinical outcomes data. If you have the ability to um, bank a small specimen, fine, or at least record what type of cell pop, you know, formulation you use, you're using, or, or some blood-derived product such as PRP. You know, collect data on what you're putting in the patient. Also, characterize the patient. So again, it just goes back to um, collecting data on our patient, on our treatment, on our outcomes. Practicing evidence-based medicine. I think it's incumbent upon us also to be honest with our patients. To um, you know, we need informed patients, let our patients understand what we know, what we don't know, where, we are, where the data is scant. We need to let our patients know um, so that they can make informed decisions as far as using these different types of therapies. I think that's the best way to move forward with responsible use in this area.
1: Scott, I think that's fantastic advice, not just for the researchers, but also very useful information for very everyday users of uh, biologics who may not be contributing to. Uh, papers themselves so thank you so much for sharing your insights with us and um it's been thank a pleasure you. speaking with you
2: thank you so much
0: um thank you scott ian and scott thank you so much for a really uh, excellent and informative discussion and congratulations scott on a really excellent uh, paper i would encourage all of our readers and listeners to uh, to uh, not only obviously listen to the podcast but to uh, read the paper itself it's a very informative uh, about the, the, the field itself and the challenges that uh, that it faces. Um, so to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share uh, your thoughts and comments through uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook and the like about uh, what we've discussed here today. Uh, and thanks again for listening.